Like Tim said, we are in a quick uh, series this summer through select psalms in the Old Testament. Now, before CDs, before iTunes, before Spotify, there were the psalms. The psalms are a poetic playlist of uh, ancient songs and hymns that speak to the highs and lows of the human experience and also how God reveals himself in all of it. And like all great songs do, uh, the psalms are often both brutally honest about life and both beautifully hopeful as well. And like all great songs, the psalms don't just tell us about life, they draw us in. They beg us to insert ourselves into the tension between honesty and reverence, between despair and delight, between beauty and brokenness. The psalms are like a mirror They don't just reveal things about the world, they reveal things about ourselves. And that is why the Psalms are such an integral part of our spiritual diet as followers of Jesus. This morning we're looking at Psalm 51 and I'm gonna be reading and teaching from the New International Version. This is a Psalm of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Church, this is God's holy and powerful word. Let us pray this morning. Lord, we thank you. We thank you this morning, God, for your word. We thank you for how it guides us, how it shapes us, how it transforms us, Lord. And we ask this morning that you would speak through your word to us, God. That you would move in our hearts, that you would speak exactly what needs to be spoken to each and every person here, Lord. All of us have come in to this room this morning, feeling different ways, 
struggling with different things, but the power of your Holy Spirit is that it can meet each and every person exactly where we need to be met. We pray, God, that you would do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth this morning would be glorifying to you and would they be edifying and helpful for your church. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me for that, by the way. Got something stuck in my throat. Well, the news spread like wildfire throughout the nation. A political leader, a decorated military hero, a man of faith revered by almost everyone found himself embroiled in the most shocking and salacious of scandals. He had neglected his duty. He had slept with the wife of one of his most trusted friends, got her pregnant, and then engaged in a cover-up so nefarious that it ended in the gruesome murder of her husband and several others. And now his failure was exposed. It was the spring of 01, 1001 BC. The place, Jerusalem. The man, King David. Arguably Israel's most celebrated and lauded and decorated king. A man who was handpicked by God and anointed by God to lead his people. A man who time after time delivered to bring victory to the nation of Israel. This man had now plunged himself into a monumental crisis that both shocked and shook the nation of Israel. And you can imagine for a second the, the, the gossip and the murmurings that, that spread throughout the nation, right? In the, in the marketplaces and the synagogues and through neighborhoods. How would David respond to this crisis? Would he flat out deny his wrongdoing? Well, for a while he did. Would he attempt to somehow spin the facts, to spin this news to save face? Would he blame shift? What would David have to say for himself? Well, Psalm 51 is like David's press release. It is his statement, his public address to the people in the face of his failure as a leader and as a man of God. And perhaps shockingly to us, David, in the end, doesn't do what we might expect from a leader experiencing a fall from grace. He doesn't sidestep the problem or offer some half-hearted statement of contrition, nor does he diminish the severity of his actions, though he did for some time. Instead, David pens a psalm. He writes and then publishes a song, a worship song that is both contrite and confident in equal measure. It's a hymn that begins with David's brutally honest perspective of his failure, but it's one that ends with David's beautifully hopeful perspective on his future. How can that be? And maybe more importantly, what does that mean for us? You see, Psalm 51 is not merely uh, an expression to God that David is making. It's also his lesson for us. A lesson not just meant for kings and leaders who fall, but for every single one of us. It's David's warning that if the king can fall, if a man after God's own heart can fall, then it can happen to you too. It can happen to me too. Because while our sin might not be adultery or murder, all of us fail. We all fall short. And the question that Psalm 51 asks is that when, not if, but when we fail, how 
do we respond? What do we do with our failure? Where do we go with it? And what I love about this psalm is that it doesn't just pose the question to us, it also reveals to us the answer. Within David's words, we discover a way forward, a path that can lead us from failure to forgiveness, from ruin to redemption, from the depths of despair to the peak of God's redemptive promise. My hope is that as we dive into these words, as we look at this psalm in light of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, that we, like David, can be contrite and honest about our failures, but also hopeful and confident about our future because of what Jesus has done for us. The good news Psalm 51 is that if King David could blow up his life so spectacularly, so marvelously, and still be put back together, then so can we. Psalm 51 helps us deal with our failure in three ways. In three ways. I'm gonna say them up front because it's critical for us to understand them together. They're all connected. Psalm 51 helps us to, one, recognize the problem of guilt. Number two, embrace the process of repentance. And then three, walk in the promise of restoration. First, we must recognize the problem of guilt. David begins his psalm by acknowledging and confessing his failure. In verse one, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. The very fact that he appeals to God's mercy reveals that he is acutely aware of his own guilt before God. His words echo that of a defendant in court, right? May the court grant mercy. David recognizes that because of his failure, he is completely at the mercy of his God. He is in a position of guilt, and if left to himself, this guilt is a problem that he cannot remove or resolve. But guilt is tricky, because all of us have experienced guilt in some way, shape, or form. And we all try to deal with guilt in different ways. But how are we to understand guilt? And what do we do with guilt? What is the purpose of guilt? Is it purely an emotional construct? Is it a feeling? Or is it something real? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it just neutral? These questions around guilt have been the subject of hundreds of books, thousands of dissertation papers, and millions of hours and dollars of therapy. And yet even the best efforts of our modern society have fallen short in our quest to free humanity from the problem of guilt. In fact, you could actually argue that the opposite is true. Our modern age has actually amplified the problem of guilt. There was a commercial that came out uh, several years ago. I'm sure that many of you have seen it at some point across your television screen. Um, But it was a commercial for the ASPCA. And you're watching TV, you get to the commercials, and then all of a sudden, you just see this sad, sad-looking dog staring right through the TV screen, right at you. And it's just looking up to you with the saddest eyes, and then the song comes on, right? That Sarah McLaughlin song? I will remember you. Will you remember me? And Oh my gosh, the feeling that you get from that commercial, it's just like your heart just sinks to the bottom of your stomach. 
What are they doing with that commercial? They are appealing to your sense of guilt. They are manipulating your feeling of guilt in order to raise money. Now, some of you might say this morning, well, what about compassion? There's room for compassion, but this is a commercial that is meant to make you feel guilty, and it works. That's the thing. It works. That commercial is responsible for $30 million of revenue for the ASPCA. But in order for us to truly understand the problem of guilt and what we do with it, we need to ask the question, what does scripture say about guilt? Because I think there's a perception or maybe a misperception that being a Christian is basically walking around all the time feeling guilty in some sort of regressive mental state. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. Maybe you're new to Christianity or you're not yet a Christian this morning and you're like, wait, Christianity is just a guilt fest. It's just being guilty all the time. But the closer that we look at the truth of God's word, we discover that faith in God and a relationship with God is actually the only way to effectively interpret and deal with guilt. Why is that? Because scripture actually gives us the whole picture of guilt. And it's twofold. The Bible speaks about guilt in both objective and subjective language. In other words, scripture says that we can both be guilty and feel guilty. This is really important for us to get because in one sense, our guilt is subjective. We might call this our standing of guilt. And this is what uh, modern psychology and self-help culture fail to address, and it's the reason why they can't solve the problem of guilt. But the Bible argues that our guilt goes far beyond our feelings, that within the human nature, there is something that is inherently uh, rebellious by default. We would call that sin. David describes this in verse five. He says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. He's recognizing that long before his failure, long before he betrayed his country or his friends, long before he fell, he was already guilty before God. And there was nothing that he could do to make up the difference. He had already fallen short. Now, if you struggle to believe that this morning, I want to encourage you to have some kids And by the time they reach two years old, you will understand exactly what David is talking about in this verse. I'm currently experiencing that right now, by the way. This is true of a two-year-old, but it's also true of a 22-year-old or 72-year-old. Sin has rendered us legally, morally, and relationally guilty before a holy God. And this kind of guilt is most certainly a problem. And the result of it is separation from God. But in another sense, guilt is also subjective. We might call this the feeling of guilt or the conviction of guilt. David describes this well in verse three. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. What he's saying here is he's saying, my sin is constantly on my mind. I can't get my failure out of my head. It's consuming me, it's eating me alive. He's describing the feeling of guilt. And all of us have felt this at some point or another. If we do something that we know that we shouldn't, or if we don't do something that we know that we should, when we hurt people with our words, when we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, we feel that guilt. We are aware of it. And what we do 
with that awareness, where we go with it matters. For one, we need to know if our feelings of guilt are legitimate, right? Because sometimes we feel guilty when we're actually innocent. If you've ever been pulled over by the police, you know exactly what this feels like. Before you've been accused of anything wrong, as that police officer is walking up to your window, what do you feel? You feel guilt. Even though you've done nothing, well, maybe you did something wrong, but before you're accused of anything, you already feel guilty. You're going through like a Rolodex in your head of all the things that you could have possibly done wrong. Like maybe I didn't use my turn signal on this turn, or maybe I rolled through a, I rolled through a stop sign on a right turn, or maybe I didn't use like my hand signals or something, right? You, you feel guilty before you're actually ever accused of being guilty. And other times, we actually feel innocent when we are guilty, So how do we know? Well, we look to God's word and his character. This is what David does. After he acknowledges his guilt in verse, his feeling of guilt in verse three, he says, you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge. What he's doing is he's weighing his feeling of guilt to God's standard of guilt. And we must do the same thing with our feelings of guilt. But secondly, we also have to recognize that our conviction of guilt, our feelings of guilt, our awareness of guilt also have a purpose. It's kind of like the check engine light on your car. All of us have experienced this probably. You are about to go on your vacation, your family vacation uh, to Yosemite National Park that you've planned for like three years and your Sprinter van is ready to go. This is like the default, I'm just describing the default Ventura vacation by the way. This is like the, the normal Ventura thing that people do. They go to Yosemite in their Sprinter van. But just like a couple days before you're about to leave, what happens? That annoying orange icon of doom pops up on your dashboard. And what is the first thing that you are tempted to do when that light comes on? Ignore it. Maybe if I don't think about the light, maybe if I don't look directly at the light, maybe if I just ignore it, then it will just go away on its own. But then you get in your van the next day and it's still there. And then you start rationalizing. Like, well, maybe it's not my engine that's the problem. Maybe it's just the light that's broken. I'm very guilty of this. That's my, that's, I always go there. I'm like, that's not the engine, it's just the light. But then you get in your car on, on the next day and it's still there. That light is still there. What is that light doing? It's saying that there's something in your engine that requires your attention. There's something that needs to be looked at. And our conviction, our feeling of guilt is a lot like that. It's a signpost, it's a warning, it's meant to alert you to the fact that there is something underneath the hood of your heart that needs to be addressed, it needs attention, it's not right. There's something in your spiritual engine that is broken. And if you treat your conviction of guilt the same way that you treat the check engine light on your car, ultimately your soul will break down. Your spiritual engine will fall apart if you keep on ignoring your guilt as scripture reveals it, if you keep ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit, sin and guilt will ultimately destroy you. It'll destroy your marriage. It'll destroy your family, your friendships, your relationships, your career. It will destroy your soul. We must do something with it. But the beauty of Psalm 51 is that it shows us 
how. And that's the second thing that I wanna look at this morning is that we must embrace the process of repentance. Psalm 51 reveals to us that the bridge between the burden of guilt and the blessing of restoration is repentance. But what exactly is repentance? Because much like guilt, repentance can be a very complicated concept for us to grasp at times. Is, is it remorse? Is it regret? Is it uh, penance or atonement? Are there Hail Marys involved? What does it mean to repent? Well, the word itself simply means a change of mind or a change of direction. But what does that mean when it comes to sin and guilt? Well, one of the beautiful things about this psalm is that it really simplifies and demystifies the idea of repentance. Psalm 51 shows us that there are two main components to repentance, two sides of the repentance coin. First, we agree with God, and second, we receive from God. First, repentance involves agreeing with God, specifically about our sin. Look at verse four again. David writes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. What he's saying here is God, I am choosing. I'm making the decision to see my sin the way that you see it. Now this is really important for us to get because if we are honest with ourselves, we often get this backward. We actually want God to agree with us. We want God to see our sin the way that we see it. Not that big of a deal. But what David understood about sin and what scripture reveals over and over and over again is that sin is a big deal in God's eyes. And the process of repentance requires that we see it the way that he does. But repentance is not only about agreeing with God. It's also about receiving from God. And what does David receive from God? Well, what does he ask for? He asks for forgiveness. Six different times throughout Psalm 51, David asks to be cleansed. This is a poetic picture of being forgiven. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me, cleanse me from my sin and my iniquity. <clears throat> That's a picture of forgiveness. But then in verse seven, he does something interesting. He goes into a little bit more detail. He says, cleanse me with hyssop. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Now, that's an interesting detail for David to include. Why is he referencing hyssop? He's not just inserting some poetic flowery language for the sake of it. Because in the Bible, the hyssop plant is almost always used in conjunction with blood. In Exodus, uh, it was used by the Israelites. If you remember the story of Passover, the Israelites uh, at Passover, they took branches of hyssop, they dipped them into the blood of lambs, and they painted their doorposts. And that was meant to offer protection for that household against the coming judgment of the Lord. In Leviticus, uh, there are specific instructions given that um, hyssop was to be used, hyssop that was dipped in blood, was to be used in the ceremonial cleansing of leprosy. 
In Hebrews 9, we actually learn that Moses used uh, hyssop that was dipped in blood to, uh, to cover the temple as it was being dedicated. So what David is saying when he says, Lord, cleanse me with hyssop, he's saying, Lord, cleanse me with blood and I will be forgiven. He's saying, my guilt and my sin are so great. The stain of my transgressions are so heavy that they can only be made clean by the blood of another. Now, David would have likely been referring to the animal sacrifices that were offered in the temple during his day. But whether he realized it at the time or not, David is drawing our attention to another sacrifice to come, a sacrifice that would be the ultimate sacrifice. Because 1,000 years after David penned this psalm, hyssop makes one more appearance in the Bible. As Jesus poured out his blood on the hill of Calvary, he's given a wine-soaked sponge placed on a branch of hyssop. And that branch is offered to him to ease his suffering. And it is at that precise moment as he drinks that wine offered to him on that branch that Jesus cries out those beautiful words that resound through the ages, Tetelestai, it is finished. And with those words, your guilt was dealt with once and for all. By his stripes, you were healed. And by his blood, you were made clean. You are forgiven. You see, to repent is not only to understand and confess the magnitude of our guilt and our sin before God. It is also to understand and receive the magnitude of God's forgiveness for you. Some of you need to hear that today. Because some of you might understand the weight of your guilt, but you've forgotten the wonder of your forgiveness in Christ. That God loves you so extravagantly, so beautifully, so wonderfully that he would pour out his own blood so that you, like David, could be washed whiter than snow. That your debt could be forgiven once and for all so that your guilt could be removed. This is the essence of the gospel. And it's the foundation for repentance. That in my sin, I am fully guilty. And yet, in Jesus, I am fully free because of what he has done for me. That in my sin, I am completely broken. And yet, in Christ, I am somehow completely whole. Now, the thing we also have to understand about repentance is that it's not an isolated event. It's not a one-time thing or a one-time decision. Repentance leads to something more. When we embrace the process of repentance, when we agree with God about our sin and we receive his forgiveness of sin, we can then thirdly walk in the promise of restoration. David begins to shift his perspective in verse 10. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Notice he's no longer asking for forgiveness from God. He is asking to be restored by God. Look at the language that he uses. He says, create, renew, restore. He's no longer focusing on his guilt. He's focusing on the future. 
And notice what connects those concepts together, create, renew, restore. It's the spirit. You see, when we're forgiven by God, we are actually promised a new and better spirit, a new spiritual engine, if you will. It is a spirit that renews and regenerates us. It's a spirit that breathes life into our dead and dry bones. A spirit that turns our weeping into rejoicing like we just sang about this morning. A spirit that makes beauty from our ashes. A spirit that restores us. This is what David truly needed and it's what we need as well. Because what David understood and what we must understand is that restoration is the fruit of forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is not the ultimate goal. Restoration is the ultimate goal. It's always been the goal. It's been that way since the first sin was committed in the Garden of Eden. God has always been at work. His desire is to restore his people. And forgiveness is the means by which God does that. See, if God didn't want to restore us, then he would have no need to forgive us. But in his love, God so desires for us to be restored that he made provision for it. He did it for David in Psalm 51. And he does it for you by sending his son to die on a cross so that we could be made clean. And by giving us his spirit so that we can be made brand new. So that we, like King David, can be fully restored and walk in that restoration. And what does that look like? What does it look like to walk in restoration? Well, we see David describe it at the end of Psalm 51. As he turns his gaze from his heavy failure to his hopeful future, he starts to anticipate all the benefits of his restoration. He describes the boldness that comes when we're restored. In verse 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. He's saying, Lord, let my life and let my story be a testimony so that others can experience the same forgiveness and restoration that you have given to me. That's what the Spirit does in us. It gives us boldness. We are no longer weighed down by the heaviness of our guilt, and therefore we can be bold to tell others about how God has restored us. He also describes the act of singing and praising God. In verse 14 and 15, he says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. David is so in awe and wonder of his restoration, of God's faithfulness to restore him, to deliver him. He says, if you open my mouth, if you just open my mouth, praise is gonna come out. That is how in awe and wonder of what you have done I am. I cannot help but give you glory for what you've done. And it's the same way for us. When we realize the full beauty of our restoration, our forgiveness in Jesus, we cannot help but proclaim it. And then finally, David speaks about gratitude. He says in verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you God will not despise. What is David talking about here? Well, on this verse, Charles Spurgeon once said, the deeper the sense of sin and the truer the sorrow for it, the more heartfelt will also be the thankfulness for, uh, for pardon and reconciliation. The tender, humble, broken heart is therefore the best thank offering. When you realize that you have been forgiven a debt that you could never pay, and when you're in the process of being 
restored to a glory beyond what you could possibly deserve or imagine by the grace of God, the only natural response is gratitude. I willingly offer myself to God in response for what he's done for me. See, to be a Christian is not to walk around all the time with guilt. It's actually to live in gratitude. It's to live in utter gratitude because your guilt has been removed and you are now free. The hope of Psalm 51 is so beautiful and it's an echo of the hope of the gospel. It reminds us that there is no failure so great that it can't be forgiven. There is no stain so dark that it can't be washed whiter than snow. There is no person so broken that they can't be put back together. No one has blown up their life so bad that God can't restore it. That is good news. And it's news that some of you need to hear today because you've been sitting underneath the weight of your guilt and your shame and your failure for months or even years and it's crushing you and it's killing you. And this morning you need to hear as clearly as possible, that the power of the cross and the forgiveness found in Jesus' blood is strong enough to lift that burden from your shoulders. Jesus' blood is strong enough to cleanse you. But Psalm 51 is also a warning for us. It warns us that there is no one so great that they don't need to be forgiven. There is no self-righteous deed or action or a or activity that will ever be strong enough to remove the burden of guilt from your shoulders. And there's some of you this morning who need to hear this as well. Because you think that if you can just perform well enough, if you just make the right decisions, if you just say the right things or support the right causes on social media, if you're just a good enough husband or wife, if you're a good enough parent or if you're a good enough friend, somehow if you are just good enough, then it will balance out your guilt. And I am here to tell you today, I am here to plead with you that that is not true, nor is it possible. Your good cannot and will not ever be able to remove your guilt. It didn't work for David, and it won't work for us. And this morning, you need to hear that it is only, only through the power of the cross that you can be forgiven, and it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can be renewed and restored. No matter what side of that coin you find yourself on today, if you are weighed down by your guilt or if you don't understand your need for forgiveness, the good news today is that forgiveness is available and restoration is possible. You know, David did a lot of bad things around Psalm 51. He lied, he cheated, he stole, and even killed. But there's one thing that we don't see David do in Psalm 51. David never doubts, not even for a second, God's ability to completely restore him. He's fully confident that God is able to cleanse him of his sin remove the burden of his guilt and restore the joy of his salvation. And friends, as we look to the cross, we too can have that same confidence. We too can have that same assurance that though our sins were as scarlet, 
by Jesus' blood, we are washed whiter than snow. And by his spirit, we are made brand new. We are fully restored. Amen? Lord, that you would restore us this morning. God, we want to come before you like David did today. Saying, Lord, here's our sin. Here's our guilt. We're not hiding it. We're not trying to cover it up. Like David, we are, uh, we are, we are aware of our sin. We know our transgressions. Our sin is ever before us. And Lord, we believe this morning and trust that you are able We can have confidence today, Lord, that you are able to cleanse us from our sin and our guilt. You are able to remove it. And Lord, for those of us who are weighed down this morning, for those of us who who are carrying a heavy burden of guilt today, may we find relief in the power of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, for the person who believes that they are good enough to balance out their guilt, Lord, I just ask that you would um, reveal yourself as the only way for our guilt to be fully dealt with, to be fully. So church, this morning, as we respond to God, let's follow in David's footsteps. Bring your guilt Bring your sin, bring your shame, bring your pain, bring your failure to the foot of the cross. Like David, lay it all down before God this morning. Don't hold anything back. Don't go halfway with God today. In fact, that's foolishness. Why? Because he already knows. God has already seen. God already knows the most wicked parts of your soul and the good news The reason to rejoice this morning is because he knows all of it and yet he still loves you. He knows all of it and yet he still loves you enough to go to the cross, to pour out his own blood so that you could be made clean. So don't hold anything back from him this morning. Give him everything today. Receive his forgiveness, your repentance, and then walk in the promise of your restoration. This morning we have the carpets available to come and take a posture of repentance and worship. There's this beautiful story that Jesus tells, a parable, where he describes this tax collector who's on his knees in the temple. He's beating his chest and he's saying the exact same words that David said at the beginning of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, for I am a sinner. The carpets are available for you to come and just get on your knees, get on your face before God. And often it's when we adopt that physical posture that God really begins to move and really begins to speak to us. Also this morning, we have communion available at the front of the stage. If you need a physical, tangible reminder of the blood that was poured out so that you could be made clean, the body that was broken so that you could be made whole. And this morning, if you need someone to walk you through the process of repentance, or if you just need prayer for anything at all, if you want to experience forgiveness, if you want to experience all of the blessings that David describes in this 
at the end of Psalm 51, if you want to experience those blessings and you want to find forgiveness, there are men and women to my right and to my left who would love to pray with you and lead you to that place. Friends, whatever failure you came to church with today, whatever guilt that you wore when you walked through the doors of this room, don't go home with it. Leave it at the altar today. Receive the forgiveness of your sin today and walk out of this place restored today. There's absolutely no reason that you cannot walk out of those doors today fully free, fully forgiven, with your guilt removed, your shame gone. The only question is, will you come before God this morning? Will you lay it all down before him? Let's do that right now as we respond.